I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Join us on our quest to find awe and wonder in all nature, human or wild, vast or small. A podcast in search of all that moves us beyond words. Your host for this episode is Tenery Taylor. In 2014, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Tracy Kidder became fascinated by a community of people living on the streets of Boston. He came to know them as rough sleepers, people who choose to stay outdoors at night rather than waiting in line for a bed in a homeless shelter. He became so intrigued that he began taking notes about the people he met, and his research became the book released this year called Rough Sleepers. A favorite of his in this community is a man he'd renamed for the book Tony Colombo. Tony was an ex-con who lived on Boston streets from 2013 to 2019. He was a large, strong man, in a way, very independent. He, above all, couldn't stand to go and live in a shelter. He'd lived in prison for 20 years. I mean, you can imagine. And the streets were attractive to him in that way. I mean, there was some freedom out there for him. Tony wanted to hold on to that freedom, but he was looking for a community. And Kidder observed that... This was a guy who was hunting for a purpose in the world, and he was trying to go straight, and he wanted to to rejoin society, I think. He would defend the weak people, and women called him the night watchman. He wasn't hitting on any of the women. He would stay up and guard them at night. He was quite extraordinary. But Tony was also quite sick with various ailments, and he'd often wind up at McGinnis House, a clinic which serves unhoused patients. Though Tony was much more than a patient there. It was really quite uh, remarkable. He'd figure out a better way for lunch to be served. Tony liked to think of himself as sort of an assistant manager, helping out whenever he showed up at McGinnis House. Now, this whole world of Tony's, Tracy Kidder opens it up in his book, Rough Sleepers. And Tony is only one of many unhoused people that Kidder writes about. We'll hear about a few of them today. Here's a truth that Kidder emphasizes. There is goodness, decency, and even ingenuity in these people living on the streets of Boston. We'll hear their stories, and though redemption will appear out of the bleakest tragedies, living on the streets as a rough sleeper involves frequent instances of physical and emotional trauma, including sexual abuse. And we're not going to shy away from any of that in this episode. Kidder learned the surprising stories of Tony and other unhoused people through a doctor, Jim O'Connell, who himself defies stereotypes. He's not your typical busy, detached doctor. Well, he is busy, but that's because he spends inordinate amounts of time with his patients, most of them unhoused, and he is unfazed by the roughness of his patients' past. I could see how much fun this might be for him. I mean, he had patients... One of my favorites was a former bank robber. And so Jim would be there sitting there examining him and asking him, why did he do it? You know, learning just exactly how you go about robbing banks. Kidder followed Dr. O'Connell for five years, from clinics in homeless shelters around Boston to vans that searched the street at night for sick homeless people who might be resistant to seeking treatment in clinics and hospitals. And he discovered in Jim O'Connell a doctor who would always show up for and even seek out those whom society had cast aside, no matter how hopeless their cases might be. Through conversations I had with both Tracy Kidder and Jim O'Connell, we'll discover a world both more complicated and more beautiful than outsiders may ever suspect. In 1985, O'Connell had just completed his residency at Mass General Hospital in Boston when he was asked by the chief of medicine to defer a prestigious fellowship in oncology and instead take a one-year position working in a clinic for unhoused patients. This clinic was located in a shelter called the Pine Street Inn. It had been run by nurses for years and had never had a doctor before. Dr. O'Connell recounted for me his transition from completing his residency, where he'd run the very busy ICU, to being the sole doctor at this nurse's clinic for the unhoused. 
by the time we get to that stage of our training, we all have egos that are just impossibly large. And I remember walking into the nurse's clinic, thinking they were going to be thrilled to have a doctor for the first time. And they said, we've been doing it without doctors. Thank you very much for many years. And then they looked at me and they said, look, you've been trained all wrong. You go too fast. You don't listen. You don't do things as the patient wants. You want, tend to do it the way doctors decide. And they were dead on. That's exactly how I've been trained. And so the nurses decided that the best way to retrain this overconfident doctor was to assign him to give their patients foot baths. The nurses were just so brilliant and so really wonderful and loving. What they would do is invite homeless people into the clinic and they would invite them to have their feet soaked. And most people coming to clinic had been walking around all day or standing in lines. And so these really crusty, kind of independent and usually feisty people would just melt and sit down on the chair and let the nurses soak their feet. The nurses always call people by their name. And I came to realize that most homeless people never hear anyone say their name with kindness and dignity. And so that initially was magic. And then the nurses took away all my doctor stuff, took away my stethoscope and all the things that you have in your black bag. <laughs> and they made me an apprentice. And I soaked feet literally for almost two months as my true apprenticeship. And it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. I learned that it flipped the power structure. I was at the feet of the person I was serving. I wasn't in their very personal space the way I would be if I was the length of a stethoscope away from their faces and hearts. And it gave me a chance to just be patient with people. And it was miraculous. Jim O'Connell never did get back to that fellowship he'd been awarded. Nope, he's been treating the homeless in clinics throughout Boston for nearly 40 years. He serves currently as the president of the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program, which he just calls the program. And he's still sold on the lessons he learned from the nurses at Pine Street Inn Clinic, one of the first clinics to participate in the program. There's a story of one particular man in Rough Sleepers, the book. He's given the pseudonym of Mr. Carr. I'm wondering if you could tell us that story because this was not the first time that you had seen Mr. Carr. No, Barbara McGinnis, who, by the way, was the nurse who really taught me almost everything I know. So when you hear me talking today, please understand this is all coming from nursing theory rather than medical theory. But Barbara had me soak the feet of one particular man who suffered from a really terrible form of schizophrenia. He was very paranoid. Somebody we had seen many times over the years at Mass General's emergency room. And we had put in his chart because he never did anything we asked. We put down that he was treatment resistant. And that was fair enough. The police would bring him in or the EMS would bring him in. He'd be in a small exam room. His feet would be terribly swollen, usually with broken ulcers and things that needed to be treated. But he would say, thank you very much and leave. Um, and so I soaked his feet. And for a month, he just looked at me with that same wry smile. I used to see him within the emergency room. And he never said anything until about maybe a month later. And he looked down at me one night. And the first words he ever said to me was, hey, I thought you were supposed to be a doctor. <laughs> and I remember this was during my apprenticeship and nobody acknowledged I was a doctor. So I was thrilled that somebody at least had paid attention. And I said, hey, I am. I lit up. And then he looks at me and he goes, well, what the hell are you doing soaking feet? <laughs> and I um, looked around and I didn't quite know how to answer that. And I could see Barbara and the nurses looking and saying, how's he going to figure this one out? So I said to him, uh, you know, I'm not really sure, but I do whatever the nurses tell me to do. And interestingly, that's what he had been doing for years, doing whatever the nurses told him to do. So he laughed and we kind of became friends. And about a week later, he said, hey, doc, can you help me with sleep? I can't sleep at nighttime. Can you give me something? Within a month of that conversation, Mr. Carr was taking all of the medication that the ER staff had been trying to get him to take for 25 years. Six weeks of foot soaking turned out to be probably the best investment on his long-term care we had ever done. Now, Dr. O'Connell may have said that he had a big ego, but even if that was ever true, it didn't stop him from having a high regard for each individual patient in his practice. One of his fellow doctors told Tracy Kidder that O'Connell had the ability to pre-admire someone, to like them before he even knew them. He said, look, you know, most people 
aren't ordinarily going to be really attracted to someone who's lying in the dirt, as dirty smells and is asking for money. He said, but, but it's possible to do. And Jim was the best at it I, if anyone had ever seen. He said, what, what he seems to do is he'll say, I know I'm going to like this person eventually. I just don't happen to know the reason yet. <laughs> you know? So he would pre-admire them. I think there's something d- deeply, <laughs> almost mystically Christian about that or, or religious about that, that sentiment. And that inclination to pre-admire people was likely tied up in his skill as a good listener. During most of the time that I was drifting through college and toward medical school, I would survive by bartending. You're behind a bar. People come and sit down and talk to you. And it's a long night if you don't like to listen. And so I learned to be kind of good at listening while I was making drinks. I finally realized I wanted to have a skill that meant more than just making someone's drink. I really like to take care of some some part of their human body or psyche. Jim O'Connell's new position with the program would require him to care for both body and psyche. And a very important part of his work was finding value in people whom society had cast aside. In just a moment, we'll get to know his unlikely and self-appointed assistant, that Tony Colombo fellow I've already mentioned. He was a felon and a chronic drug user who actually held the homeless community together. He had such a generous and protective nature. I'm Tenery Taylor, and this is Constant Wonder. We're visiting with author Tracy Kidder and Dr. Jim O'Connell about Kidder's book, and here's the full title, Rough Sleepers, Dr. Jim O'Connell's Urgent Mission to Bring Healing to Homeless People. One of the book's main figures is a man given the pseudonym Tony Colombo. He was a large, imposing man, and his story highlights so well the triumphs and the limitations of a program that seeks out and treats society's most vulnerable. Tony witnessed a murder when he was just six or seven, and his father regularly beat his wife and children. The neighborhood he grew up in was a pretty violent one. And we didn't know this for the longest time, but he did later said with enormous conviction and believability. And anyway, there were a lot of reasons to think this was true, that he was raped by a priest from a pretty, pretty young age on for a while. And I don't know if everything sprang from that or not, but he had been a very bright student. I ended up dropping out of high school, starting a life of sort of petty crime. And he also had a lot of psychological problems, we know, because, you know, he ended up going for psychiatric care to a place called the Lindemann Center quite often. It's not absolutely clear what he had, but probably complex post-traumatic stress disorder, according to the psychiatrist on the street team who really took a big interest in him. He committed a, a sex crime of his own, apparently. He was sent away to jail for a better part of 20 years, not quite 20. And when he first told me about his time in prison and how he helped other inmates and did this and that, mind you, this is a very large man, very fit, I mean, very powerful. About 6'4", by the time I met him, he was down in the 200s. But at one point in jail, apparently, he bulked himself up with weights and stuff and got up close to 300 pounds. And he talked about how he liked to help other inmates and particularly young black guys who were in jail. And, and I thought, oh, sure. But then I met someone who'd been in prison with him, certifiably. And he said, no, no, those are all true stories. That's the way he was. That's the way Tony was. And then subsequently, yet another guy said it even more strongly. He said, he gives away stuff. That's what he does. That's what, he, that's what Tony did. You know, when I knew him, he was constantly giving away cigarettes. If he had some money and somebody needed it, he'd buy him a Big Mac or something. He just had this enormously powerful instinct to give away pretty much everything he had. But for all Tony's generosity, don't think for a moment that getting released from prison meant smoother sailing. Things remained bleak for him. I would urge everyone to understand that this is so complicated, and I'd go back and forth about what is the right thing to do. Tony, for example, had done something when he was 17 or 18 years old. That was the only offense he had, and then spent the rest of his life paying for that. And 
you know, from some things you might want to say the offense was so heinous, that's the condemnation he deserves. But somehow he did all of his time in prison, but then came out and realized that his sentence was really lifelong, not just the 20 years he had spent behind bars. He was labeled a level three sex offender, which was essentially a condemnation. You can't get housing at that point. You're condemned sort of be on the streets or in the shelters. Tony, despite being condemned to homelessness, was still that generous soul he'd proved himself to be in prison. In fact, he acted like a self-appointed assistant or manager to Dr. O'Connell in his facilities for the homeless. And just a note here, when I spoke to Dr. O'Connell, he was in his program's headquarters across the street from the emergency room at Boston Medical Center. When he showed up, he was a very imposing character. He was friendly, delightful, but also, you know, clearly able to take care of himself. And he had been a long time in prison. Um, but when he came out, we realized early on that his goal was to just do something good. He wanted to help. And it was really quite... Uh, remarkable. He'd figure out a better way for lunch to be served, or he'd show the manager how drugs were smuggled or alcohol was smuggled in. He wouldn't rat anybody out, but he'd show them the ways it was done. How were they doing it? All kinds of ways. One was a string down to the sidewalk and with a pillowcase in it. You could put something in and pull it up. Just You had to find the right time to do it. If it were pills, you could have a cane, and the cane has a rubber tip. You could put the pills in the rubber tip, put the the rubber tip back over the cane that doesn't show up on a metal detector and you know at times it almost annoyingly he would appoint himself as the you know the, the person that can help us out assist us but as we got to know him better we realized that his role on the street was something he embraced as someone who would really take care of the weakest people out there Until very recently, Mass General Hospital had a small plaza on its grounds, which many homeless people called Mousy Park. And they would congregate there. It wasn't too far from the famous bar Cheers. I came to see it as kind of like Cheers. Most homeless people who are on the streets could go there and there would be people that would know their names when they got there and their friends would be there. Mm. There was one day when one of our really vulnerable folks said something awful about the mother of one of our other folks. We could feel a big fight coming on. But Tony saw this coming on, and only Tony could have done this. He came over, and he, he knew both of them well. And he was able to convince the stronger man whose mother was being much maligned that this was not about his mother. This was about something else. And Tony put his arm around him, and they walked away. It was really great. But that's the kind of stuff he was able to do because he was so respected by the other homeless folks out there. Tracy Kidder and Jim O'Connell saw even more in Tony than a helpful manager type. They got to witness an artistic side of Tony as well on an outing with Tracy's wife, Fran. He was really smart and he had all this native intelligence. My wife's a painter and she knows a lot about art history. And we took him to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston where he'd never been. He'd never even been to that part of town even though he spent all his life in Boston. I remember taking him in there and being a little a little embarrassed. I hate to admit it, because he looked pretty shabby, and he was a very conspicuous fellow. He's big. And then I realized, you know, oh, he could easily pass for an artist. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and he behaved really, really wonderfully well. He was an extraordinary student. My wife was taking him in front of pictures, and at first he was saying sort of silly things that people would say, oh, you, a kid could draw that, and making silly jokes. but. Then he got into it, and it was really quite staggering. It was this little show of, well, they're not technically paintings, but just think of them as paintings by a German artist. In one of the paintings, there's a nude woman with her back to uh, to you as the viewer, and there's there's something odd about the way her, her hand and wrist are cocked, and just her stance. Tony was staring at this painting. I heard him say to my wife, Franny, doesn't that look kind of like the the David? Michelangelo's David, that is. The figure in the piece Tony was looking at was in the position of contraposto, with one hip slightly cocked, like David's stance. I said, what? I was just thinking that, you know? And then she said, well, wait a minute. And Tony had never studied art. She said, you must have studied art. You must have read about David and all that. And t- Tony said, I- I'm Italian. He said, Michelangelo, the Colosseum. <laughs> well, I'm Italian. <laughs> but what he had seen, a trained art historian would have seen this, probably. But it was something that m- most people would never have seen. 
for him to make this connection between this 20th century painter and a famous statue by Michelangelo is really quite amazing for someone with absolutely no training. As we put him in a cab and he's, the cab drove away, Jim said, I just can't help thinking what he might have been, which is something you often think about in that very sad world. When he was sick, which was often, Tony frequently wound up at the McGinnis house, which was considered a respite house, a place where homeless people could go once they were released from the hospital across the street. This facility was the first of its kind in the nation. Understanding how McGinnis House works really illustrates the unique problems that the homeless population has when it comes to medical care. So let's get some background on what respite care is before we continue with Tony's story. When we we first started, the homeless people were very angry with uh, us doctors and with the hospitals for discharging them when they were still very sick after an illness. And where most people can go home and have their family and a visiting nurse and maybe some home health aides, people that leave the hospital after bad illness who are homeless go back to the shelters and walk the streets. And they were furious. And so one of the things they mandated us to do was to come up with what they called a respite program, a medical respite unit. And that's where people who were coming out of the hospital way too sick to survive the rigors of survival on the streets, but not so sick they needed to stay in the hospital, could go and have 24-hour nursing and doctor care. So we started doing that back in 1985 um, at the mandate of the people we were serving. Most surgery now is day surgery. Most chemotherapy is done as an outpatient. And think of if you're homeless and you have terrible cancer now and you have to have chemotherapy. You go have your chemotherapy, then continue to walk around the streets. So respite has become a place where you can provide the kind of care for homeless people that really requires a safe place to be able to do effective treatment. I'd like to go back to Tony's story because he could come in to the respite house and get some treatment for his physical ailments, but that's not long-term, right? It's not long-term for anybody. Usually what we do is have a length of stay somewhere between two and three weeks because the front door is somebody who's very sick needs to come in and use the bed. Um, So that's always been a a limit for us. We can't keep people six months or eight months. So it's a real dilemma for Mm -hmm. us. And our staff struggles all the time with how do you discharge somebody who's doing so well, but at the same time you need to get the person who's really sick coming out of the hospital into a safe bed. Let's talk about Tony's health challenges and how hard it was to get him the treatment he needed. He emphasized for us, you know, how difficult it is to survive on the streets and take good care of your health. (laughs) And he struggled, you know, he struggled with some substance use disorder. And he, you know, he had had longstanding ADD. And as a child, he had often been on Ritalin, which is like an amphetamine to help him be normal. So on the streets, people often will use, for example, cocaine because it acts like Ritalin for them. So people with ADD calm down with their cocaine. And he would, when he was feeling himself becoming hyper, would really want to get the cocaine. So he was in that, you know, in that very terrible borderline where he was using it to stay normal, but had to get into criminal activity in order to get the cocaine. So that was one thing, trying to treat his ADD and his depression and the trauma, you know, the post-traumatic stress that he had. But then he also had several medical problems, as so many of our folks do. There's often a combination of, you know, the severe and persistent mental illness with a very acute and chronic and or chronic medical condition or conditions. We were trying hard to get him on the right medicines, and often that required getting him off the streets into our respite program, the McGinnis House, so that we could slowly and in a controlled condition get him on the medicines that he really needed to be on. What Tony really needed was permanent housing. According to Kidder's research for rough sleepers, people who rely on homeless shelters in Boston die at a rate about four times higher than their counterparts in the general population. Rough sleepers die at a rate 10 times that. And so someone like Tony nearing 50, was his time was probably pretty much up. He did have a lot of things wrong with him, but nothing it would have seemed fatal, um, not necessarily fatal. He was disturbed and he needed to be housed. 
he would come into McGinnis' house just a wreck and he'd sleep for 48 hours. This is the, the respite. And then he'd, he'd resume his duties, his self-appointed duties as social director. Dr. O'Connell, in addition to seeing patients and overseeing the program, also devoted time to doing social work. He and other team members went to court with Tony to document that their patient really was trying to get clean and abide by the law. What happened to Tony? Were you ever successful in finding him a place? Uh, Nope, we never found him a place. Jim was working very hard on it. He had failed to register various times as a, a sex offender, that's a pretty serious crime. He still had all these these outstanding warrants, and Jim set out to try to get him those warrants cleared going to court with him, and he finally had gotten them cleared. But then, I think it was I think it was almost too late. I think the stress of life out on the streets, the great disappointments that he went through, all these friends dying. You know, he started to believe that he he was like an angel of death, and that if anybody got near him. They were going to die, too. And then he got really scared that that would happen to Jim. So he had to stay away from Jim. He got very paranoid. It wasn't without some reason. One time he got knifed really seriously on the street and he got patched up and, and was OK again. And then some time later, he got beaten up by four guys with a baseball bat, broke the orbital bone, one of his eye sockets. But he survived that. In the end, Jim had to go away on a, a lecture trip, I think. And during that time, Tony, he didn't commit suicide exactly, but he, he didn't take the medicine he was given. To be honest with you, if I were stuck in that predicament of being homeless and out on the streets and with very little chance of being housed, and I'd take every, every substance I could find that would, at least for the moment, take me away from there. I'm pretty sure I would. So, and he died. He died on the streets. And I'm still not... I'm not very happy about that. I think I chose well when I chose him to be the main homeless character here because he was a person with enormous potential and there was something really lovely and sweet about him deep down. And then he died basically on the sidewalk a block from the hospital. And just realizing after all those years to see him die that way was really difficult. And I think we all struggled. What was remarkable to me was all those people who were outside who called him affectionately the night watchman and who had come to depend on him were devastated. The ripple effects of his death were huge throughout the homeless community here in Boston. The team saw glimmers of Tony's potential, unrealized potential. In a moment, we'll learn about someone who was able to thrive once she finally accepted care from the program. And she's gone on to teach other homeless people how to thrive. She's even schooled some doctors along the way. Now, I say finally accepted care because she lived on the streets on and off for 30 years, and she used to hide from Dr. O'Connell. Why do some people choose to stay on the streets even when shelters will take them? I'm Tenery Taylor, and this is Constant Wonder. I asked Tracy Kidder, author of Rough Sleepers, Dr. Jim O'Connell's urgent mission to bring healing to homeless people, about that expression, rough sleepers. Why would people choose to sleep outside when shelters were available? Dr. O'Connell used to ask the rough sleepers he met the same question. And very often people would tell him, look, I can't sleep in a big barracks with 500 other men who are snoring or maybe going to steal my stuff. And Having been in the Army, I understand that myself. The most poignant answer I think he ever received was from a man who was uh, suffered from schizophrenia. We found him late one night sleeping under the bridge and it was a blizzard. It was really cold. And Jim begged him to come inside to the shelter just for that night. And the man said he just couldn't. He couldn't. And Jim said, why? And he said, when I'm in the shelter, I can't tell which voices are mine and which are someone else's. When I'm out here, I know which voices are mine. It's not really much of a choice, Tenery. It's a pretty awful choice. It's humiliating. Basically, you have to leave the shelter in the morning, usually, pretty early often, and uh, walk the city streets and then get back in line to get in, get a bed that night. The whole 
procedure. Once you're going to bed, you pass under these blue lights and you would, your clothes would go in one place and they'd be disinfected, heated to some temperature, which would kill all vermin. And you walked right down a corridor of showers. And then you were given a night dress, more or less. To, this is the men's shelter, a big night robe, and given a bed. With a, They all had numbers at the heads of them. It was pretty grim, actually. Now, 95% of Boston's homeless population stays in shelters at night. And so the city has installed clinics in many shelters across town, like Pine Street Inn, where Dr. O'Connell got his start. But it became clear during a tuberculosis outbreak when people were dying on the streets that they needed a way to reach those people who wouldn't come into the clinic. So the program got funding for a van that would drive the streets at night looking for those who were sleeping rough outside. Tracy Kidder rode along on the van before he even began working on rough sleepers. In fact, it was his first van ride that piqued his interest in Dr. O'Connell's work. It was like a whole world that had been lying in plain sight that I hadn't realized was there. We'd stop at these various places, and I gathered that they were pretty much routine stops because you knew who was going to be at this one and who was going to be at that one. They'd say, well, are we worried about anyone particularly? And if so, they would try to find that person to make sure they didn't need to be brought into the hospital. It was always a standing invitation that the van would take you to a shelter or, if need be, to a hospital. But what really struck me about it was the relations between this Harvard-educated doctor and these people who were, you know, some of whom were arguing drunkenly with statues and parks and and others just, you know, lying on, on park benches. But the, the warmth and the relationships was really quite fascinating to me. And improbable, it seemed to me. And I wanted to know more. The van was never intended to be a mobile clinic. Its purpose really was community outreach, to find people on the streets and convince them to come into an actual clinic. Jim O'Connell had to come around to this way of thinking about how the van could have the greatest impact. The van, which was designed by homeless people themselves, by the way, is really interesting. We've always had a core of homeless people that help us design and implement our plans and programs. But they didn't want a medical van as I did. I really wanted to fashion a really fun medical van. But they said, look, when we're outside sleeping in the middle of a cold night, we're not looking for a doctor or nurse. We're looking for soup and sandwiches and blankets and clothing. So the van was deliberately made into a van that went out every, and still to this day goes out every night from nine at night till five in the morning. And um, I would serve soup and sandwiches, but it's how I would get to know the folks on the street. And then I could sort of parenthetically say, if you need anything, I'm a doctor, you know, and that's how we kind of earn trust at this without trying to frighten people away by being a doctor. And once we got to know them, it was very easy for them to accept us as doctors and nurses. Our real goal was continuity. So we see people on the overnight van anyway, you know, several times a month, if not twice each week. And that continuity has really had a huge return on our ability to then provide, you know, not only acute and episodic care, but real chronic care and management of chronic illnesses. So, you know, we've had people that we've had to manage their heart failure out on the streets because they won't come into the clinics. Other people will, once they get to know us, will come in and see us in our clinics at Mass General Hospital or Boston Medical Center or in one of our shelter clinics. But that van has been really the the tip of the spear for getting to know people and and, and getting them to trust us. Joanne Garino, her real name, by the way, was a rough sleeper for many years, choosing to live on the streets. She used to hide when she saw Jim out on the streets because she was ashamed. Joanne had a horrific life for decades, and her experience is shockingly common for people who are unhoused. Studies have shown that 84% of women living on the streets have been assaulted at some point in their lives. She was raped by a... Uh, not not a member executive of her family, but a, an older man for a number of years, I think from the age of eight or something. Her mother had deserted the family. Her father, according to Joanne, did his best, and he didn't know about this. If he had, there'd probably been a murder, <laughs> she said. Uh, she had a kind of checkered life. She described herself as very cute. She had a lot of boyfriends, but she ended up taking a lot of drugs. She ended up getting HIV. 
Joanne lost an eye to a stabbing and later developed hepatitis C and rheumatoid arthritis. But she didn't make use of the services of the program until she was injured in a motorcycle accident. It was during her time recovering in McGinnis House that the staff convinced her that her life mattered, that she could stop using drugs to mask the pain of her past, and that she could forgive her mother. And she began haltingly to do all of those things. She now uses a walker or a wheelchair, and though she is successfully housed, she's quick to instruct her doctors and med students about their own biases against homeless people. When homeless people end up in the hospital, it's frequently the place where we, the doctors and the staff, will be most neglectful of them. We often stigmatize them. You know, they don't have nice clothes. They often haven't showered. So there is a lot of real pain that homeless people go when they come into our hospitals that just aren't geared to take care of them. And Joanne will be the first when someone comes in and is sort of standoffish. She'll make them look her in the eye, for example, which I think is one of the most powerful things going. And she'll say, you can't take care of me unless you're going to look at me. And she really teaches the students how to really pay attention to her. And because she's got such complicated medical things, they need to pay attention. So she's exquisitely effective. But I remember a fellow in orthopedics who was going to look at whether she might need her hip replaced or not. And he was just being mechanical about everything. And she looked at him and said, you know, you can leave. I don't need someone like you. Why don't you send someone who's going to look at me and take care of me? And I remember that orthopedic resident just standing up straight and realizing I'm doing all this wrong. I'm being like a mechanic. And he started apologizing to her and then talked to her about why his life was so difficult and why he was being so mechanical. And she was magic. She just, you know, helped him understand People are people, and you've got to treat them like people. We need people like Joanne in the hospital to teach us. Dr. O'Connell often takes Joanne Garino with him to a special orientation for new medical students at Harvard, where he is an assistant professor of medicine. She encourages them to respect people who don't look respectable. And she's a great teacher, possessed of a feisty determination. Tracy Kidder attended one of her presentations. She has a way about her. There was something charming, not something. There was, she has a great deal of charm. But I noticed, for instance, that she'd sort of cock her head. You have to understand this is in an amphitheater, so there's this kind of sea of, of white coats, one of the white coat ceremonies for these brand-new Harvard medical students. It's like she's looking up a ski slope or something. But she would cock her head, and at first I thought she was being coquettish. And then I realized, oh, no, she's missing one eye from her life on the streets, which is, for women is unbelievably dangerous. But she started in telling her story, and this is what she, I think, generally did, which is a very, very sad story. And she would interject from time to time, you know, say a student forgot to turn off the cell phone and it went off, she'd say, hey, turn that off. And, and then she'd say, I'm sorry, I don't mean to yell at you, you know. I have to add something, comic relief here or something, because this is kind of a sad story. Dr. O'Connell brought Joanne onto the board of the program, along with other people who used to be homeless. Joanne also serves on state and national boards trying to end homelessness. And she's done something else really helpful. She wrote a pamphlet directed to people who have just gotten housing after living on the streets. It's called A Housing Guide, Tips and Tools for a Successful Housing Experience, which for somebody who's never lived on the streets might seem curious, like, well, you have a house, so now you have everything. Why do you need an owner's manual, a guide to living in a house. You never can solve homelessness unless you have housing, unless you have enough housing. But doesn't mean that housing alone is sufficient. It's necessary, but it's not always sufficient. And Joanne and several of our other consumer board members got together and started pointing out to people the difficulties of living in a in an apartment after you've been on the streets for years. And that little pamphlet is full of all the things you wouldn't imagine. Like most people have never, for example, never learned how to use a um, remote control for their TV. Most of them don't know how to work a gas stove. Most of them never really had a chance to pay bills. How do you pay utility bills, et cetera, et cetera. So in this little pamphlet, they talk about all the things you're going to have to master in order to be successful in housing. And then... Her compadre, who was the vice chair of our board, whose name was Larry Adams, at the same time Joanne was writing that, he did a video to show people how lonely it can be 
when you get into housing. So you've been in the craziness of the streets. You've got a community out there, people who know you going by. But all of a sudden, you're now transported and put into, you know, a one-bedroom apartment in a part of town you don't know. And Larry's first impression was that it's so quiet, I can't sleep. He usually slept outside with all the noise. And he came back to our uh, our buildings right across from the emergency room at Boston Medical Center. And he actually taped the sounds all night so that he could bring that tape home and play it mm. so he could go to sleep with all the ambulances and the cars and the horns and everything. And then um, they talked very openly about the depression almost everyone feels after you look so forward to getting into housing and you're so thinking that that's the final answer. And then you get in, you realize after a while you're lonely, you don't have friends, you don't have a community, you don't have the support you're looking for. And then how to cope with that is something that they talk about very realistically and very honestly. I guess it can be tempting if you get an apartment and you've made friends on the streets to just bring people with you. How much of a problem is that? It is a major problem, and I'll tell you why, because I keep thinking of Mousy Park, for example, there's a real community there, people who know each other, and they know when each other might be in trouble, and they rally to help. And the example I can give you is during COVID, when we finally had vaccinations, you'd think that homeless people would be very reluctant to have it. But in fact, most of our street people, our rough sleepers, were happy to get a vaccine because they knew it would protect each other. Kind of interesting upside-down thinking where... Most of us in communities are a little bit more selfish. They are much more aware of how devastating an illness can be for their own population. But if it's a very cold night, for example, and you have an apartment that's warm, your friends from the street are going to say, please let me in, just let me in. And I I just have to admit that if I think I'm in their spot, I would let those people in. How can you leave them outside? They're your friends. But inevitably that's going to violate some of the rules of the housing that they're in and jeopardize their ability to keep the apartment. So we worry a lot about how to modulate that, how to try to get people to not invite people in. Or if you do invite people in, you need to keep it under control. At the same time, acknowledging they can't say no to some of their old friends who they've slept outside under blankets within the coldest of weather. To say, no, you can't come in, stay outside in the freezing is really difficult. Tracy Kidder spent five years following Dr. O'Connell's work, five years investigating this world that he admits he'd never really noticed before. It was hidden in plain sight. I asked him how that experience had changed him. I think it's something really elementary, actually, that's changed for me. Maybe it's summed up in that great line by the French philosopher Rousseau, who said, what wisdom can you find that is greater than kindness? These people whom I got to know through Jim and his team, I probably didn't write enough about that wonderful team. These people whom I got to know, they weren't taught things that you need to know. How do you clean a house? How do you clean a room? How do you balance a checkbook? But a lot of times they just didn't have the material resources available to them. How do you keep clean in a city that has almost no public bathrooms? And I think these deficits can make people seem alien or somehow hopelessly, incurably primitive. But that's only if we see them from the corners of our eyes. If we really got to know them, we'd probably dislike some and like others, but we would have to admit that all of them are human, fully human, just as human as you and I. You know, they all carry the most complex structure in the known universe on their shoulders. And I think that's something worth knowing if it really can get embedded in in my soul, I think it has a kind of radiant quality, a way of seeing the world that's better than the way I think I used to see it. But that's about as much as I can claim. I'm not giving away all my worldly possessions and becoming St. Francis. Jim O'Connell is certainly not comfortable with people calling him a saint, but he has given up quite a bit in his nearly 40 years of working with homeless patients. When he first started out with the program, he did little besides work and sleep. He'd work four days a week in hospital clinics, five evenings a week in shelter clinics, in addition to three overnight rides in the outreach van, plus paperwork, about 100 hours a week. Did this make him a saint? When I look back over the almost 40 years, I realized that early on I had, you know, and I say this with all due self-inspection, I had no work-life balance that to get this program going and to address, we had the AIDS epidemic, we had TB outbreaks, we were small staff trying to do way too much. So we really worked way too much. And we really try hard in our program now to make sure people don't do what 
I did. I was married late in our only child, which she came very late in our life, Gabriella. And my mother, by the way, used to say that I was guilty of living my life backwards, that I should have had my children 40 years ago rather than now. But um, I think we've now learned that to do this and sustain yourself in doing this, you have to keep a balance. If I look back on the regrets I have in my life, the failures and mistakes I made were usually because I was not paying attention to the people I should have been loving and paying a, a lot of attention to trying to get this program going and taking care of the people who were in shelters and on the streets. So it's an important lesson for me that obviously learned, learned late, hopefully not too late. The sheer scope of the problem of homelessness seemed to demand so much from a young Dr. O'Connell. Where do you draw the line with so much hopelessness haunting the lives of people on the streets? And if you give everything you have to the problem, knowing it will never be enough, what might you lose in the process? Your faith in our social institutions, in humanity, in God? Okay, I want to ask you a question that was put to you by Tony. Um, and he was very distressed at this point in his life. And he felt like the world had turned against him. So he said to you, he said, where do you see God, Jim? Where do you see God? Ooh, that's a, that's a question I try my best to dodge. <laughs> but um, Tony asked me directly, and it was at a time when he was feeling particularly vulnerable and how could there possibly be a God that would allow all the things that are happening to him happen? And I struggled, to be very honest with you. I, he had just been dealt a very terrible hand in life. He had made some terrible choices, but he now was suffering inexorably because of those choices with no, at least no way that we could see that redemption was on hand. And so I had to um, back off a little bit because I, I had to think about it. And I remember talking to him, I don't know if it was probably the next day, about, I had thought hard about it. And, you know, the truth is, I don't know why any God would allow all these things to happen. But that's a mystery that I don't understand. But what I have found, and I think this is where we, this is where it gets maybe a little dodgy, but what we have found is that even though we aren't able to maybe change the overall outcomes of many of our folks' lives, you know, the privilege to get to know them over time, to have them share these very complicated and painful stories with us, and then to know that we will be there for them and they can rely on us, that there's something in the joy of that relationship, something in that joy anyway, where I think a God emerges. It's not the traditional God I might have thought of when I was back going to Mass at age 9 and 10 and 12, but I think it's a much more powerful God. And when I remember talking to Tony, I don't know if he bought it, but I said, look at the relationship we've been able to have. Look at all these people that we know at Mousy Park, the people that come together and will take care of themselves. Don't you think there has to be a God working in that? So I, I think I've come to see the joy of my life anyway. And Joy, I think our team would agree with that, is that we're just doctors. We're not going to change the overall trajectory necessarily of homelessness, the tragedy of homelessness in America. We're going to work toward that, but we're not, I can't build enough housing to end the problem. But we can get to know the people we're serving, minimize their suffering as best we can, and let them know that we're there with them. We are standing with you, whether it's in the bright light or in the deep darkness. I think a project that really, for me, encapsulates that is you, you have a portrait wall outside your office or in your building. And there are pictures you've taken of your patients. Mm -hmm. When did you start doing that? Why did, why did you do that? For the longest time, to be honest with you, Tara, I would never, this is before cell phones, of course. So we never brought cameras with us. We thought that was being voyeuristic or taking advantage of people. We wanted to be in solidarity with the people we were serving. And we wanted to respect their anonymity and their privacy. And then I got chastised by a woman who a woman who had lived on the streets for years ended up getting terrible liver failure from hepatitis C and drinking too much. And she came into our McGinnis house 
And we talked with the transplant surgeon. She, the only way she was going to live is to get a, a new liver, which is a very complicated operation. And the surgeons wouldn't do it unless we could show that she had six months of residential stability and she could stay sober, which she came into our McGinnis house and she's one of the few people we allowed to stay for six months and even longer. And she was amazing. She, you know, a lady who always called herself a bag lady was just wonderful, stayed sober. And as it got near the end of the six months, and she was now going to be on the list for transplant, she called me over one Sunday morning and said, would I mind taking her picture? I had to go home and get a little throwaway camera that I had, how I wish now that I had been a good photographer. But I went back and uh, and she got all dressed up. She had a linen dress and she had really nice shoes, put her hair up in a bun, wore lipstick, had earrings on, a necklace on, and painted her fingernails. And then she even went outside and picked some fresh flowers to put in a styrofoam coffee cup next to her bedside table. And she stood there and let me take her picture. I thought she was really worried about facing death. And so I went back, brought the picture back to her in the afternoon in a little throwaway frame. And I said, you know, wow, are you really worried about dying with this big surgery coming up? And she put her arm around me and said, oh my gosh. She said, I have been out in the streets for 27, 28 years, facing death every single night. She said, most nights I really would have welcomed death. She said, so I'm not afraid of death at all. But then she said, and this is what really took my breath away, that she had two daughters. One was three years old, another was five years old, when she last saw them 20-some years ago. And what she wanted was to have a picture of her looking presentable. So in case they ever decided to go looking for their birth mother, there would be someone, a picture of someone they could at least be proud of. And that was the picture. It was just breathtaking. Um, and I had completely missed what everything was about. But the interesting part of the story to me was that when I came back a couple days later, there were 22 people who asked if I would take their portraits. And we started to realize that completely contrary to what we had thought, many people, especially when they're doing well, are looking to leave something, to leave something that people remember them by. And so we now have portraits up in the hallway I'm looking out at right now and up in our McGinnis house. Obviously, some people do not want their portraits up. I would say the vast majority of people do. And some people get admitted and they're very upset when their portrait isn't up there. So we have to hardly get one done and get one up there. So it's an interesting look at the beyond by a homeless population who feel that they've had to suffer in this world. There must be something good on the other side and they want to leave a legacy behind. Jim O'Connell is president of Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program. He's the subject of the book, Rough Sleepers, Dr. Jim O'Connell's urgent mission to bring healing to homeless people. We were also joined this hour by the author of that book, Tracy Kidder, a past winner of a Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction. I'm Tenery Taylor. I produced this episode with help from Lily Jensen, Eric Schultzka, and Marcus Smith. Sound designed by Kevin West and Mitchell Towsley. We hope you love what you're hearing on the show. If you do, please leave a helpful review or a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform and share this episode. It helps so much to get the word out. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.